Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. In 1989, along with his brother Neil, Russell Merry took on the family business, working with his father. He spent the next 20 years building a sub £1 million business with two employees to an award-winning £13.5 million business with 26 employees in the form of Hot Wheels, the UK's leading supplier of BMX bikes, before selling the business in 2009 to Doral Sports. Having spent the last 10 years in leadership roles in the US with Cycling Sports Group, he has just begun his latest venture, Brake Fluid, a caffeine-based adventure sports brand. So what's his story? Without further ado, let's get into it. So Russell Merry, good morning. Welcome to the Extrology podcast. Uh, really appreciate you coming in as my guest this morning. So much that I want to want to talk to you about, but I guess uh, interested to start with the uh, the here and the now, uh, and in particular with what is an exciting time with the launch of Brake Fluid. So tell me, what is Brake Fluid, and what's the story behind it? Uh, Brave Fluid's a coffee brand, and there's a crowded coffee market, obviously, which is dominated by you know multinational companies. And then there's a sort of hipster uh, coffee industry with tons of tiny coffee brands with cool names. But Brave Fluid is a brand name, a coffee supplier and brand that I bought a couple of years ago. I bought it in January 19 as a brand. And uh, my intention is to develop it into a coffee business which I think could one day become a caffeine-based adventure sports brand would be a bit of a tagline that we don't use publicly. And that is because I've spent my life in in the bicycle industry historically or, you know, skateboards and, and those kinds of action sports industries. I have an interest in cars and motorcycles. And I think we can sort of create a, a brand, a lifestyle brand that is based around caffeine and coffee and eventually goes into other beverages potentially. But right now it's a tiny coffee-based business that we're going to grow. And and why coffee? What was the thinking behind the? If you go, you talk, we'll, we'll we'll delve into that uh, that transition, if you like, from skateboards and bikes to to coffee. But what was it about coffee or the coffee industry that appealed to you? Well, I'm going to have to admit that it it wasn't really the coffee industry that appealed to me. The first thing I saw was uh, it was going to. So I was in the bicycle industry and uh, had a design office uh, in Froome and and worked in the sort of global bike industry. But bizarrely had a design office in Froome and I looked out of the window of the office one day and saw the word brake fluid etched on a window opposite and thought, that's a super cool brand name. I like the play on words, B-R-E-A-K fluid. And I just like the logo and I liked everything about it, just looking out of the window at, a, at an etching on a window opposite. And I asked what it was to the, the colleague I had working next to me and uh, and he told me what it was. And I wandered over and just sort of started to ask them if, uh, you know, it's actually someone I knew. And, and I said to him, if you ever want to sell this brand, I'd I'd like to buy the brand because I think I can do something with this brand. I don't know anything about coffee, but I'll learn about coffee and I think I can develop a, a business. You know, I, I like coffee, but, you know, I like tea too. I, I drink tea and coffee like most people. Um, so I didn't have a, a huge, I mean, you know, honestly, I didn't have a huge historic passion for coffee. So I had to go and learn about coffee after I bought the brand. So where do you start? Because the success of 
the coffee industry, if you like, if I look back, that it strikes me over the, certainly if you go back maybe north of 20, 20, 25 years, there weren't coffee shops on the high street. There were tea rooms, yep. uh, certainly if I'm looking at the UK, but now we, you know, you, you can't pass a, a corner without a coffee shop in some way, shape or form. But where do you even begin to start to understand how you build a, a, a well, how you make a, a decent cup of coffee in the first instance? Well, so, so actually I, I went to Seattle in 1991-ish, and Seattle is obviously where I think Starbucks sort of came from. And and uh, I went there in, with the bicycle industry and we were designing BMX bikes and working with a supplier. And every morning we used to drive into the office and he'd stop in a drive through and get a coffee and, you know, had all these different choices. And I, I remember thinking, well, we just have like tea or coffee in the UK. This is never going to catch on. So, uh, so yeah, all the way back then I went to Seattle, which was sort of a bit of a home of America's coffee. And, uh, and I remember thinking the British public just aren't going to do this. They you know, we drink a lot of tea, and uh, and we drink tea or coffee, and it's like a quid, and and that's it. So uh, so a long long time ago, I thought it was probably never going to happen, like it obviously did. And then I saw this brand. I saw Brake Fluid probably in about 2016, and that's when I first saw this logo and thought that's very cool. That's a super cool logo, and I'd like to sort of get involved in that. But I was very much in the bike industry. And I kept asking, like every six months when I'd go to the Froome office, I kept asking the guy, I just kept walking over and saying, how's the business going? And if you ever want to sell it, I'd like to buy it. So every six months, I basically went and asked, would you like to sell it? And eventually they did sell it. And that's a story in itself. Uh, so in, in January 2019, I bought the brand and and really had, you know, I liked coffee. I'm one of the people who goes to an independent coffee shop and buys sometimes a cappuccino, sometimes a latte, sometimes a flat white, you know. But but again, didn't have I didn't have this sort of I mean I've been in the bicycle industry and there are people who are passionate enthusiasts and know everything about it because it's an enthusiast based industry, but there are people who are that passionate and enthusiastic about coffee. But I sort of thought I could I could blend my experience in action sports with a cool brand with an industry that's obviously vibrant and thought well this could be a good business and it could be fun. So yeah, I did how I set about learning about it. Honestly, I I bought the brand and then I thought I actually ought to learn about this. I really don't really know anything about the product much and where it comes from. And so the first thing I did was go to a, a thing called the Speciality Coffee Association and had their introduction to coffee day. And I, at the end of it, you have like a multiple choice and I, and I answered questions and passed the test. But, um, but literally it's a day of, uh, of learning about, you know, the coffee belt and where coffee's grown and Arabica and Robusta beans and stuff like that about coffee. So I sort of learned the basics in a day's training. And then I've, uh, I, you know, I met at the roaster and I, and I, we've actually changed roasters to a different roaster and I've begun to learn more, but you know, there are people who've spent their, in the same way that I spent my lifetime in bicycles and related sports, you know, if, if every day you were immersed in it and, you know, you pick up and read the magazines because you're interested from a kid, you know, you can't really pick up all that knowledge in a short period of time because you can't become someone who's been immersed in an industry for a lifetime in a short period of time. So, so I've learned, you know, quite a lot more and I learned, I've learned, I've learned a lot more about coffee and I'm learning all the time. Am I a lifelong industry expert? Like there are those people who are passionate. No, but what I'm doing is learning, but also I'm working with those people. So I'm finding those people and I'm listening to them. Excuse you have to forgive my ignorance, but that instant kind of thought process goes to the wine industry for some reason and the and the role of the sommelier in in you know integral to the success of your 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 particular wine and the growing process that goes into it is coffee similar is that sort of the roaster if you like is that the the coffee industry equivalent of the yep. sommelier 
seems that way. Yeah. You know, they they you know they, we work with a, a great roaster and uh, and you know, his knowledge is endless. He has a huge different uh, array of of beans, and you know, there's picking the right beans from the right region at the right time, and then you know, there's there's blends and roasting and all that stuff, and so. And we are, uh, you know, we will have multiple sort of levels of uh, hopefully revenue streams in this in this business, and some will be, you know, very premium and and expensive, and and others will be a more commercial offering that is in a coffee machine, for example. So yeah, there is that level of expertise. I'm, uh, I, that you know, the, a, a mad passion to get involved in coffee was not my, you know, initial stimulant for getting involved in this brand break fluid and trying to start this business. But you know, I'm learning. Has the experience to date been what you imagined it was going to be? So these are really, really early days. Mm. Um, really, really early days. I was a, an officer and a sort of I was an employee of a public company and uh, and worked in the bicycle industry as a member of the global senior leadership team of a $1 billion company. And I so I had a family business a long time ago, me, my brother, my dad, we had a family business, we grew it, it was a bicycle company, and we sold it to a $2.7 billion corporation. And uh, that led us to go in different ways. My dad was old enough to retire. My brother decided it was a good thing to do to to retire and do other other hobbies and interests. I had a little time where I sort of thought, well, I'll try something else. And I um, I became an approved candidate for one of the political parties with the idea of fighting the 2015 election. But then I sort of fell out with them and told them there's too much politics in politics and gave that idea up. So I went back to work for the public company. But once you've been an entrepreneur and owned your own business, it is quite hard to work for someone else. And I did it for a number of years. And it was a, it was a good industry. You know, bike industry is a great industry because it's enthusiast led. And, and so it's not always uh, you know driven to be entirely the most profitable because lots of people are in it for the reasons of passion and, and liking the product. So it's a great industry. But working for someone else is not easy when you've been an entrepreneur and you want to make your own decisions. Even if someone's telling you what to do and they're right, it's still not easy to go, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. So I always sort of knew that uh, I needed to get back to being an entrepreneur. And so I bought the, the brand in 2019, but I only actually started being fully focused on it on the 4th of January, 2021. So I've been learning and, and you know, working in evenings and weekends and sort of doing stuff around it. And uh, I actually have someone who, you know, who's been very focused on running the business and marketing agency that do all sorts of things for me. And um, there's been a lot of background work to do. There's been, you know, when I bought it, it owned the trademark uh, brake fluid in the US and the UK, but it didn't own it in any other markets. And to me, if you're actually going to hopefully have a business that's you know going to be of worth and scale and everything else, you actually have to make sure that you get the basics right, like owning the trademark in all the countries. And so now I own the trademark in, you know, basically every major economy that you think you might one day go into and that will either prove to be a good decision because uh you know there won't be some trademark dispute down the road in five years time or it'll be a bad decision because we never get there and never should have spent the money and then we own other uh, at least one other name the name fuel injector seems to go really nicely in the beverage industry particularly with a caffeine kind of product and uh and fuel injector is sort of you know complementary to the brake fluid name and so there's another trademark registration that we have in you know many many countries. So there's been a lot of um, back office work, and and also the thing I, I bought the brand registered in the UK and the US, but they didn't own the URL breakfluid.com. They own .co.uk and .cc and a few other .coffee and those kind of things. But you know again, I thought if this is actually going to one day have any real value, it, it it has to have .com. So I found that 
a person who is, you know, owns like one of those people who owns 10,000 random domain names owned breakfluid.com and he lived in Massachusetts. And so I had to buy that too. So I bought that from some sort of, you know, via a, a mediator kind of domain name registration negotiating person. So I was actually laid in the bath when I bought breakfluid.com and I hadn't actually quite signed the paperwork to buy the brand at the time. It was in that in that period where I'd sort of shaken hands and agreed, right, I'm going to pay this and buy it. But I hadn't actually, the solicitor hadn't drawn up all the paperwork and it hadn't been signed. So it's a bit, you know, chicken and egg, which one do you do first? But anyway, I was laid in the bath and um, the phone went and it was the guy from America saying to me that, you know, this was the price and uh, did I want to pay by credit card? So I um, I sort of stayed in the bath, but I leant over and got my, my credit card out of my jeans pocket that was in the bath on the floor of the bathroom and uh and just sort of reached it and you know dried my fingers and uh and said uh, yeah you know 4929 you know next four digits next four digits and so I bought the uh I bought the domain name off of a domain name hoarder in Massachusetts and I bought the brand off of uh you know off some blokes in Froome and so the story so far really is uh, doing a lot of back office work and having people sort of help me whilst I whilst I saw out my my days in the bicycle industry and had gone from being a public company employee back to being a pure entrepreneur. I'm interested to explore that entrepreneurial journey because as uh, as I understand it, 90, if we go back to 1989, uh, which is when I think I'm right in saying that you and your brother started to run the family business, if, I, if I'm right in saying it. What, what was the story behind it? And uh, and let's talk a little bit about what was the family, Hot, Hot Wheels as as was the family business and, and therefore your, your move into the bike industry. I might need to go back to 81, actually. So 81, uh, I'm at school. All the cool kids have a radio, radio controlled car. I decided I want one of those. My birthday is in December. So, you know, when you're a kid who has his birthday in December, your parents always say, oh, that's a big present. You'll have to have it for birthday and Christmas. So they got my radio control car. I turn up at school in January and every cool kid's no longer got a radio control car. That's to be charged every 15 minutes. They've got a BMX bike. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I've got the wrong thing here. So I say to my parents, I need one of those. They're like, yeah, December. So I then tell them, look, there's kids at this school that I can, I can buy these bikes off a wholesaler and sell them to the kids at school. And I, I need to because I have to make enough money to get one of these bikes. So we sort of fib to a bicycle wholesaler that we're opening a shop and we buy some bikes that because I, I know I'm going to sell them to these kids at school. And my dad says, you know how to build these things, don't you? And I was like, yeah, no problem. No idea. So uh, we we assemble them on the bedroom floor of our house and you know, we, you know, we put the bottom bracket cups in with a hammer and a lump of wood and things like this. And we, we get them built, but we put them, my dad had petrol stations. So we put them in the petrol station shop just for a few days storage almost whilst I line up some kids to buy them. And that was sort of interesting because, you know, we'd sold them within two days out of my dad's petrol station in Castle Lane in Bournemouth. And they were 140 quid each, which was, you know, quite a lot in 81, 82. So, so like we did, the kids at school didn't get to buy them. And I, and I was like, oh, that's great. You know, I've made enough profit on these three bikes to get my bike now. And he's like, well, I think we'll get some more. Um, but about six weeks later out of his petrol station forecourt, we, uh, we, I think we did 17 bikes that Saturday and uh, I was not doing homework because I was assembling bikes in the evening. Um, hence my poor education. And, um, and then, so yes, six weeks after we sold the first bike, I think we did 17 on a Saturday out of a petrol station forecourt selling these bikes that we were building during the week. And, you know, we were selling bikes in the week as well, but on the Saturday we had a particularly good one. So that sort of was it, but I was still a school kid and I left school and 
I went and worked for Debenhams on a youth training scheme, which we had in that era because there were no jobs. Uh, I won National Youth Training Scheme Trainee of the Year. I was sort of a bit of a poster boy for, you know, 25 quid a week government jobs. And then I went and worked for Toys R Us uh, and was a young manager for Toys R Us. And I, I ran the Woking store in the end. Just before my 20th birthday, I became general store manager with a six-man management team and 150 staff. And that store, back in the day when Toys R Us only had 11 stores in the country, I think we took 12 million a year. And uh, our best Saturday was 225,000. So so that was quite an interesting responsibility at sort of 19 and 20. But um but yeah, in 89, I sort of rejoined the family bike business, which had started in 81, 82, and it had grown into a, into a, out of a petrol forecourt, into a shop, and then through a few twists of fate, going on holiday in California and ending up in a, in a bike show in Las Vegas, because we happened to be there at the same time as the bike show was on. I wanted to go to the bike show. My brother wasn't really into bikes, and, and he went to the Formula One Grand Prix in Las Vegas that was, that was in the the car park of, um, oh, I forget the name of the hotel now. And uh, I think he saw Paul Newman in the pits and things like that, but he didn't want to go to the bike show. I went to the bike show. We became a bicycle importer distributor. I was still at school or working at Debenhams and the business grew. Then it had some really tough times. My brother, who was in the car industry as a car mechanic, he joined the company and basically saved it by driving around the country and selling what we had left. You know, those kind of action sports industries like BMX and skateboarding and mountain biking and all that, they have booms and busts. And the trick of it is is to get in on the up and to you know work out when it's going to bust because they are cyclical. So uh, you know I joined the company in '89, uh, having sort of you know ended it with Toys R Us and and all that sort of stuff because it was I wanted to join the family business and the the family business at the same time took on the distribution of Mongoose, which is a, a you know, sort of youthful kind of action sports bicycle brand. And the, the mountain bike boom was uh, was just beginning. So my brother and I worked together and we did sort of gradually take over the running of the family business. And a complementary skill set was a good thing. I've always joked that my brother did all the work and I just talked about it. And so, you know, we sort of grafted and it was a, it was a really small family business and we grew it and we made some mistakes and you know, bought the wrong stuff a few times, but basically got it going in the right direction. And we grew it from a really small bike shop with a bit of distribution to a to a pretty reasonable size um profitable company over a you know a period of time we had 27 employees and 14 million turnover and i don't think we ever made a loss and and uh, so it was it was a good company but and we went through things like the asian currency crisis whenever that was and you know there were scary times when 2001 was was obviously 911 and you know a week later we were in las vegas at a bike show and so we went went through some periods of uh, and a foot and mouth was interesting for for the bike industry because no one could go into the countryside and ride and you know, so there's been all sorts of uh i mean we're obviously in a period of of the global pandemic and that's that's the strangest time there's ever been but you know there's there's been quite a few strange times foot and mouth was very strange for the bike industry you know, 9-11 was strange the global economic crisis was uh was what led us led us really to sell the company and uh and it was good you know it's a good time the, through the, some of these difficult times sometimes you get some good fortune you know, we were buying, we had uh, 27 employees, a sort of 15 million turnover and had won a number of awards for being a good supplier to the bike industry. But we used to buy in dollars and we had um, millions of dollars worth of purchase orders outstanding in Asia. And then all of a sudden, and, and we, you know, we understood currency management and we had some currency protection, but, you know, not, you don't, you don't protect all of your, uh, all of your risk. 
And so the pound fell in 2008-9 after that sort of northern rock thing kicked it all off. And then the global economy went into a tailspin and, you know, Gordon Brown saved NatWest and all that stuff. But the pounds fell from, we had a lot of dollars at 198.75, but within a sort of six-month period, it fell to 136, which was the fastest decline of the pound since it fell out of the gold standard, So, um, which was 1930-something or other. So yeah, we were wow. This is a you know this is a risky game, and the pound has continued to be under pressure. And where are we now? It still stays at one thirty six or one thirty seven. So uh, you know we had to manage that process of the of the rapidly declining value of the pound. And we spoke to our major supplier who owned the brands Mongoose and GT, and and uh, they said, look, you know you you're good guys, and we now own Cannondale and maybe we'd like to buy you. And we said, well, if you want to buy us and um, pay a fair price and we get a fair price and everything else, then then that would be a good thing. So they did. So we sold the company and uh, uh, on the 30th of September, 2009, and we went to work for them and we had to do, you have an earn out. So you, you know, sell for whatever the price is, but you don't get all of that. But the, op- the opportunity is to over deliver in the, in the uh, following period. So our earn out ended on the, uh, end of December 2012 and we fortunately did over deliver and uh, that was very successful so um I forget the question you asked me now <laughs> I've been going on for ages but but that the history of how I got to here I think was what you were wondering so yeah work for the company till 2009 so I sell the company in 2009 work for them until th- 2012 actually leave in 2013 because I was sort of struggling to be an employee and then you know have a think about this politics thing which which wasn't really for me either because that again involved other people sort of telling me what to do and then I did come back and work for the bicycle company in 2014 as a member of the so running the UK which is my old desk my old office my old company in the building I still owned uh, with my brother but also as a member of the global senior leadership team um, because I'm I'm a bike guy you know so I I, I was a member of the uh, senior leadership team with lots of smart people who were a chief finance officer or a president or a uh, you know chief marketing officer, a, a COO. You know, there's there was all these people that were sort of you know uh, smart that maybe smart that could be they had a transferable skill set. You know, they could you could be a, a chief operating officer in more than one kind of company. I was a bike guy, um, but you know when you have an enthusiast based industry where people have grown up liking the product and are passionate about it. You sort of need someone who, you know, so you keep the balance between between keep it real, which is what you need to do in an enthusiast-based industry, and commercial reality. You need to get that balance. If you go too far towards purely enthusiast-based, you never actually make any money because you're just too passionate about the product to see the commercial side of it. And if you're purely commercial, then you're not authentic. And so you never make any money or because you're, you're just driven by the business element of it and you don't actually remain connected with the customer. So therefore, I, I was the guy who was like in the, all the meetings who basically, well, I can't do that in the bike industry and and uh, and just, you know, kept it, kept it sort of grounded a little bit. So that's why I went back to work for him in 2014, because you need someone who's, you know, authentic in the industry and understands enthusiast based industries. So I've worked there. I've worked there really ever since, but always knowing that um, that really I should sort of, you know, be the person who tries to tell myself what to do. And I'm that time is over and it's time to go back to a sort of an entrepreneurial world and it's it's quite exciting to own a brand you know i've i've owned brands before i owned a, a brand uh, called charge bikes which is you know creating a bike company i think owning a brand is a, is a bit special uh, you know owning a, a company where you 
buy someone else's products and then sell them to someone else as an intermediary, which I've done as a as that as that distribution business in the bicycle industry. That's sort of nice, but when you can actually have the brand and you can create the product and and the product that you make, you know, is your own. You decide what the quality of that product is. You know, quality versus price, and you know. If we go too high, we won't sell that many because it'll be too expensive. But if we go too low, we'll trash the brand and, you know, that that kind of stuff. So I think it's it's nice to own a brand. And that's why this is a pretty exciting opportunity. And also, I'm 53 years old, right? And I've spent most of my life in the bike industry. And so I have no idea, really, if I'm a one-trick pony or not. Well, you, you mentioned earlier, you, you're, a, you know, as you say, you were referencing your, your bike industry experience and you, I think you said, I'm a, I'm a, I was a bike guy. Were you always a bike guy or you go right the way back to childhood and that first kind of, actually, there's an opportunity here. Where did that, I guess I'm interested to understand where that entrepreneurial kind of instinct or inspiration came from originally when you go back to your childhood. I think it has to be my dad, really. You know, he, he worked for a company in the car industry and then, and then gave that job up and moved to Devon and opened petrol stations and you know, just, he was 40 odd, I think it was five or something. And he just said, right, we're going to move to Devon and we're going to go and open a business. And so I think opening a business and going and being entrepreneurial comes from my dad. We, you know, we did some cool stuff. Like my brother was particularly good at, at motocross. I actually was particularly not very good. Um, so, you know, he, he raced motocross. Motocross was a cool sport. You know, there was an era of, of air cooled twin shock motocross bikes, which became, single shock liquid called motocross bikes and you know that that kind of sport it's again it's an action sport that's a cool sport so we did motocross but my brother was pretty successful and i was pretty unsuccessful so when i saw bmx i was like oh that, that looks more fun so i went and did bmx and was reasonably successful and and that was a fun sport and it's very accessible to kids because you know this coronavirus pandemic has seen lots of people not going abroad on holidays and almost anyone who's opened their eyes will have seen lots more people out on bikes it's been a you know boom for the bicycle industry and that's been widely reported in all the papers. But one of the things that's been so good to see is how many kids you've seen out on bikes because you haven't actually seen that for years because they've been staying in and playing PlayStation and all those other things. You know, I think the import duty on a PlayStation is about 2.4% and the import duty on a bicycle is 14%. So the whole tax system is rigged against getting kids and going outside and pedaling around. That's another debate. So uh, it's great to see kids out on bikes. But yeah, I I I basically wanted one of these bikes, and, I, and because of the December birthday thing, I couldn't get one. So the only way to get one was to sell some. And then I sold some, and I got one. And and then when we had a shop, and, and then we became an importer, I sort of always had the coolest one, which was you know nice. Was, was there a moment? Do you remember how you felt when you sold your first bike to a mate at school or whatever it might have been? Do you remember that feeling? Uh, actually, it was it was earlier than that. Um, when we, when we moved to Devon, that we had petrol stations either side of the road on the A30, which was if you're going to Cornwall on holiday, you went down the A30. The road was so busy that it used to sort of basically become almost a complete traffic jam. So my parents used to send me out with newspapers under my arm age five or six into the road and sell people newspapers in the window of their car because people didn't used to come in the petrol station that much because they wanted to sit in the traffic because they didn't lose their place in this sort of traffic. And so yeah, my parents used to just be going, you know how, how when you used to stop at traffic lights, people used to clean your window with a squeegee? Well, I was like the, I was the five-year-old that used to sell newspapers to people stuck in the traffic on the A30. Obviously, you wouldn't do that these days because that sounds ludicrously dangerous. But um, but the traffic was sort of stopped or slow motion, so I used to go and sell newspapers. And then And then actually when I was at school, because we had a cash and carry account, because we had these petrol stations, I used to go to the cash and carry and buy um, bags of crisps and undercut the school tuck shop 
and uh, I used to make sherbet at home, which was uh, sugar, citric acid and vanilla essence. So he used to make sherbet at home and sell that to kids in bags to rot their teeth. So uh, so I did always sort of try and make money. Uh, undercutting the school tuck shop was fun because I made money and I undercut the school tuck shop, which I used to quite like. So um, so I sold crisps just a couple of pennies cheaper than them. So no, I think I've I, I think I've always sort of had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak. Uh, the public company thing, working for a public company for ten years, who I really like, and it's been a tremendously pleasant uh, and amicable departure. But that's been. That's been really interesting, too, because it's a really varied experience, you know, being an entrepreneur and running a family business with almost no org structure, you know, with everyone asking me or my brother questions and and just like, you know, no, no structure uh, at all uh, is very different to working in a in a public company where, you know, people have titles and, you know, senior vice president and executive vice president and director and, you know, all these American titles largely. But having both experiences and and working in a public company with all the all the different sort of rules regulations and behaviors that that that, that encompasses is polar opposite and how did how did you find the transition because that that strikes me that's a, you know to your point going from a a family business of of 25 30 people where the decision is you and your brother and your father involved or whatever it's, it's you you're making perhaps those decisions without wishing to sound glib around the you know around the dining room table or whatever it might be yeah to then go to a public company where there are so many vested interests and stakeholders inevitably say inevitably perhaps inevitably politics comes into play different positioning it's a it's a it's dramatically different dynamic how did you manage the transition yeah, loads of people struggle with it, right? Loads of people who who are an entrepreneur who sell their business, who then have to work for the business for a period of time, hate it. Most don't last. The earnout often doesn't work because there's dispute between the seller and the buyer, and that didn't happen in our case. And there's there's a few reasons why. One, I think it was necessity, and we absolutely wanted to maximise the value. Another one would be clause four point three point three, which is numbers I'll always remember. Clause four point three point three basically said no material change to the running of the business during the earnout period. It was the best. It was really blanket and really wide. And I was really pleased with it because uh, I, we just continued to run it as our own business for the earnout period. The earnout period was from September 2009 to the end of December 2012. And 4.3.3 was, you know, that's a long earnout period. 4.3.3 was great. Uh, it was Enron period. Public companies were, you know, were under scrutiny to be very uh, straight because Enron hadn't been. And so what it did was allowed a transition, I think. It, we went from family business where we made all the decisions to a uh, region of a public company where we had uh, a contract that said that that things had to be done the way we still wanted them to be done. And also it was successful, you know, like it, it grew rapidly. It went from, it went from uh, 15 million when we sold it to within a couple of years revenue being, you know, 35, 37, something like that. Profits were great. So, you know, in my experience in a public company, if you're making profits and, you know, going in the right direction, people don't tell you to do something different. They just say, keep going. And so it was going well. Uh, the bicycle industry, you know, that so we sold in 2009, the earner ended at the end of 2012. That was, you know, London Olympics, Sir Bradley Wiggins, you know, just like cycling was on a, on a high there. Road cycling was on a high. So the industry was generally going in the right direction. We were going in the right direction. So we had this we had this transition period. So, so whilst we had this control caused by a good contract of um, selling the company, uh, that that was okay. But that came to the end of the end of December two thousand twelve, and I, you know, I did leave in two thousand thirteen. So it wasn't easy. It isn't easy to be an employee once you've been an entrepreneur. I, I went back because 
you can't retire at whatever age I was, uh, 45 or something. You like, you can't do that. No one else is retired. So all your mates are, are busy and the weather got a bit bad because it got to winter. And that Jeremy Kyle program that used to be on was terrible. So you can't spend your days watching that. So I needed something to do and uh, going back and working in the bike industry for some really nice people who, uh, who did sort of, you know, need me a bit because... The bike industry is cyclical. It's trend-based and you have to you have to try and understand the industry. You have to see where it's going. You have to see where the trends are going. And that's what my history had been. So I went back to work for them and I've you know worked for them 2014 to now. So yeah, I, your question is, is it difficult and how do you make that adjustment? I think one, we had an adjustment period and two, it's difficult. And and there isn't that many entrepreneurs and people who owned companies that, that continue to work for the company they sold forever because they're not making the final decision. What, what do you think you you learned from that corporate experience if you like well it is a corporate experience and it's and it's completely opposite i think you know we ran a successful business but we ran it in really simple terms you know you you buy something you pay you pay x for it you sell it for y y is definitely more than x and it and it and it we don't spend the the gap in the middle or all of it on running the company but you know i certainly learned you know basics about the pnl and the balance sheet and all that you know much 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 better and and you know, I've been involved in a company now. So the, the division of the company, which I was a, uh, you know, one of the senior leadership team, was a was a billion dollars, and so you know, uh, procedures and process. And I and I sort of learned that if you do spend a bit of money and you put the process in place properly, uh, you know, sometimes that can benefit. I, as an entrepreneur, I tend to wing it all all the time and just sort of make it up as you go along and and uh, and try and spend as little as possible. And I still, you know, try and make sure we get value in everything. But sometimes if you know process uh, put in place properly can save you a lot of money in the long term but i also had a really interesting you know career from 2014 to whatever we are in now you know i i ran the uk office the, the first week i was sort of back in 2014 i was also made the head of global parts and accessories so bicycles are either a complete bicycle or the bits and bobs that you you know bolt on them or replace uh, so i'd always been someone who bought things you know and and then sold that that product in a box to someone else in this case, I was sort of in charge of research and development and, you know, creating new products. And I had engineers and designers and industrial designers and graphic designers and all that kind of stuff and was making, you know, capital uh, investment kind of decisions on, you know, do we spend? Well, the first one I cancelled actually was a was a, a helmet design. We had a product manager, uh, industrial designer, et cetera, who were developing a whole new method. In fact, we were we were signed up to a license by someone who'd created this uh, helmet technology, an American company who were trying to sell this helmet technology because there's obviously a lot of concern about concussion. There's always been a lot of concern about concussion in the NFL. And so we were working with an NFL sort of semi-authorized company who were trying to create new helmets for for uh, American football and then take that technology to the bike industry. And it was inflated pads of the pinhole in it that if you crashed the air escaped very slowly from the from the pad which would hopefully give you more um, head protection but we'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars already trying to sort of create this into into a helmet and i became the um i became the head of parts and accessories and you know that was the first project i cancelled and that was a fairly big decision because you're like well we've already chucked you know a few hundred thousand dollars at this and maybe it's the next big thing in helmet design, and maybe I'm walking away from the you know the license agreement stroke stroke you know with the patent holder of this system that could revolutionise bicycle helmets, because maybe it really is the thing that will it will you know help your head. But I sort of sat there and thought about it and thought, who wants all these pads pressed against their head all the time? You're gonna 
sweat like a pig. And the product manager had huge belief in it. Anyway, so Global Heads of Parts and says, I cancelled that and uh, and we stopped the investment in that. And, and it's never happened, that, that particular helmet system has never become a system in any sport or anything that I've ever seen. So that, you know, seems like a good decision now. So I was global head of parts and accessories. And then I continued to sort of, uh, you know, run the UK and, and head and parts and accessories. And then I also became the leader of our North American business. So that was a, uh, you know, north of a hundred million dollar business, uh, in the independent bike dealer sector in America based in Wilton, Connecticut. So that was uh, just north of, uh, of New York. And so uh, in 2015 and 2016, I ran that business too. So so at one point, I was the UK managing director, the head of global parts and accessories, and the head of North America, which was USA, Canada, US retail, and US sporting goods. So that would be supplying Dick Sporting Goods and uh, those other kind of retailers in the US. So I used to count it, I think, as six jobs, but... But um, so, yeah, so that was pretty interesting and exciting too, because, because I, you know, I hadn't run a business of that scale. That was a... You know, 35 reps and and uh across across north america and so i i, I got to run a you know a, a business that was significantly more than 100 million dollars uh in the us uh, as well as the uk as well as doing this parts and accessories so the the breadth of experience of you know working in america that's a pretty interesting experience because you get the cultural differences and so i i had to try and figure out like is this the same as running a bike company it's an enthusiast based industry it's the it's the bike company the bike business is this the same as running a bike company in the uk and you know there were similarities but differences because you know americans are, are speak the same language as us almost but but obviously not entirely and they think and behave differently and so i had to find my feet and work out how to turn that business around it was a bit of a turnaround uh, it hadn't been performing that well and we had to sort of change the culture a bit and uh, and get that business uh, going. And so, uh, yeah, I spent two years almost not living in America. I actually lived still in the UK. I lived in Poole, uh, which is where I live. But I would have, uh, so week one would, you know, of, my, of a, of a four-week cycle, week one would be in Poole. So I'd go in my pool office. Week two, I'd leave uh, home at four o'clock in the morning on a Monday and catch a Virgin flight, VS3, I think it was, nine o'clock from uh, Heathrow. I'd arrive in JFK, Around lunchtime, I'd drive to the office uh, and spend the afternoon in the office and then do a meeting in the evening with someone over dinner. And then I'd be in the office Tuesday and then Tuesday evening, I'd do another meeting. Wednesday, Wednesday evening, another meeting. Thursday, I'd be in the office. And then Thursday evening on either VS43 or one of the other flights that was that you get to know. Funny, you get to know everyone. You get to know all the cabin crew pretty much, but you certainly get to know the check-in staff and, and you know, you get, oh hi how are you it's like wow this is getting strange they're recognizing me now when i check in but yeah i used to fly home on a thursday night i'd land on a friday morning i'd come home have a shower and go to work in my pool office and then be at home with the kids at the weekend so uh i would commute basically to i used to say commute to new york because it sounded flashier but the truth was i'd commute to wilton connecticut but uh so week one pool week two wilton connecticut week three pool week four somewhere else in america because I'd have to go and visit customers and I'd have to go and learn about the market and, and you know, try and visit staff. And so I'd be in California or Florida or, or Canada or, you know, just places in America. Uh, week five would be the beginning of the cycle again. So I did that for a couple of years and I, and I thought that was fine because I, you know, I thought I dealt with jet lag okay and I, you know, just, I worked it out. I worked it out. So I always came home on a Thursday night and was home on a Friday morning and, you know, dropped into my pool office and then spent the weekend with the kids. So they didn't really know I'd been away. My, well, my kids were at boarding school at, at um, 
in their A-level period. So they actually sort of didn't really know I'd been away. They didn't know if I'd been in Paul this week or in or in California because to them it really didn't make any difference because I was home at the weekend. So the stuff I've learned in the public company was, you know, I think, I think, I hope, honestly, that I think I've taken the experience. When we sold the company, when we told the family business to the public company, we stood in front of the employees and told them we would retain the best bits of the family business and add the best bits of the public company, you know, financial clout and, you know, power and, and resources. And then we'd sort of try and keep the entrepreneurial and, and, you know, family feel of the business. And we'd put the two bits together. So I think now I've sort of done both, which is something I think quite unusual. I think in this new business, which is still tiny, but has great aspiration, it's a, it's an acorn at the moment, but we'll try and grow an oak tree. I think the experience of, of completely opposite behaviors should serve me really well, mm. because I think I can figure out how to, how to, you know, be a public company. And that would be making fast decisions, not having meetings about meetings and, and, uh, you know, having too many people in a room, half of which don't say anything. And then, you know, the other half sort of debating, you can, you know, you can make quicker decisions. So I think that the experience has been my whole business. I'm, you know, 53 years, I might've said already, it's all just been an apprenticeship, honestly. So, uh, you know, with a mixture of the family business and the public company, it's, I think it's a good starting point for this business. You mentioned it's a, it's a, it's an apprenticeship, if you like, it's a constant learning experience through business. Is there, is there one decision that if you look back, you reflect on, you think, actually, I wish I'd done, or yeah, pro or whatever it might've been. Something you think, I wish I'd done that differently. I wish I'd, I wish I yeah. hadn't done it. And, and if so, what might that be? So we're obviously in the strangest of times with coronavirus and it's got its health, its health implications and, you know, it's being, it's very serious and all the rest, but from a, from a, Business standpoint, I think I was a bit calmer because we went through the 2008-9 economic crisis, uh, which, you know, clearly not a health crisis, but it had it was a radical period uh, of uh, business instability again. And, and it's only like 10 years ago and we went through it. And that time on that, I lost a lot of sleep in that occasion. You know, we, we had a we had a business that that traded a lot in dollars. It basically bought in dollars and sold in pounds. And we had built a business. It's a family business, but you know, one of the things we'd done. I think Warren Buffett said the best investment you can make is pay off your debt or something. And so we were, we were very, very conscious as a family business to to pay down debt. And you know, we paid off our mortgages and we owned buildings and we, and we we just constantly looked to pay down debt. And so we actually had something. You know, we had assets and everything, and and we had some value. And so, with, but then all of a sudden we had this huge risk of the foreign currency being the the purchase orders we had placed in in dollars and the volatile like I, I remember going to bed one night and it was 165 and waking up the following morning and it was 156 and I was thinking wow like I I actually didn't believe it I was back in the day day the BBC used to have the feed of the of the um, currency on its website and I was thinking they've got this wrong like it, it's it, they've transposed a figure here someone's someone's input it I was thinking and I was looking around I went on different currency websites I was like no it's you know like it's I went to sleep last night it's 165 I woke up this morning it's 156 so the global economic crisis of 2008-9 was was like pretty was pretty dramatic uh, impact on me. Certainly a lot of, like genuinely a lot of, I don't think I slept for 22 nights. I remember watching Sky Sports News just like all, all night. And that repeats like every 15 minutes. You've you've heard about Sergio Aguero's transfer a few times if you, if you do a night of Sky Sports News. So yeah, that was a pretty radical time. And um, one of the things we did is, I think you asked, would we do anything different? You know, we had quite a lot of stock that we'd paid for 
at higher currencies and we sold quite a lot of it to turn it into cash to make sure we were cash rich to make sure everything was really safe but when we had to rebuy it uh, the currency had depreciated and so we were buying it much more expensive we should have held our nerve a bit more and just paused for breath a bit and it was me actually that that was like let's let's you know sell that turn it into cash and be more cash rich that was just something that that uh, you know these those were radical times 2008-9 were were you know economically shocking times you know with people talking about whether NatWest would run out of money and you know would the cash point machine still work and all that stuff and you know Gordon Brown who I wasn't a great fan of him as a politician but many credit him with sort of saving the world economy because he did some radical stuff and and he did seem to do stuff that everyone else seemed to be paralyzed by fear and he did seem to come up with a plan which which didn't get called quantitative easing or something in the end he did seem to do something and control alt delete it all and restart it but um but yeah, we we the only thing I could really think of that's been that's been like you know is 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 that we sold a bit a bit too much stock a bit too cheaply in the time because it became quite a lot more expensive to rebuy it later and we were a stock driven business. But overall, like you know, would I do I regret selling the the company? No, not for a second. Like my dad went off to retire, my brother's gone off to do other things. Uh, you know, I've I've had interesting experiences. We, we provided a great deal of stability for our employees. We provided a great deal of growth because we grew from 15 million to 30 odd. And uh, so, you know, went from 27 employees to 65 employees. So we did we miss some opportunities yet. And like, like if I'd known that coffee was going to go crazy in 1991 when I was in Seattle designing bikes, I would have gotten to coffee earlier. And uh, so that was a miss. And, uh, you know, Actually, there's a if anyone who likes sunglasses or whatever knows that there's a brand called Oakley. You know, a long, long time ago in 1981, 82, there were two handlebar grip makers. One was called Oakley and one was called Amy. And we we went to the Amy factory first and became the Amy factory, the Amy handlebar grip distributor and not the Oakley handlebar grip distributor because Oakley was, in fact, a BMX bike handlebar grip maker before it was a sunglass company. So. We decided that Amy was cooler and we went there first and became the Amy distributor for the UK. We didn't ever become the Oakley distributor for the UK. Had we been, you know, maybe we'd have uh, sort of gone along a ride with Oakley and I'd be a sunglass salesman now. And so, and look what Oakley became. And and, uh, Amy actually went back into the medical industry and went back to making rubber surgical implements in the, in the medical industry. So there's, um, you know, there's been interesting things, uh, not, not getting into coffee in 91, not becoming the Oakley distributor in, 8182 if they'd have had us so there's there's things that have uh you know opportunities you see later but I don't, you know other than selling a bit of stock too cheaply in 2009 in the mad world i don't think there's anything that's been really gone really gone wrong what about is selling the 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 family business is that the achievement from a business perspective of which you're most proud no i think uh i don't think i have one thing that i'm most proud i think you know, we did take me and my brother and and um, me and my brother largely because my dad was sort of getting older and and uh, and he did sort of operate. A, he, my dad wanted to keep control, so he had a sort of a divide and conquer. So once my brother worked out that we should work together, we grew the business a lot. I think I think that you know we took a you know I'm not a I'm not Elon Musk or any other sort of huge uh, business guy. Uh, I took a with my brother a small uh, family bike shop uh, uh, which had a bit of distribution and we turned it into a significant and award-winning bicycle distribution business in the uk we won many awards as distributor of the year we became the official bike supplier to center parks that was good fun you know we went i my kids are dairy intolerant so we didn't go abroad that much because 
back in you know turn of 2000 you couldn't really get dairy free quite as easily as you can now so we just used to go to center parks I turned up at Centre Parks and thought their bikes were rubbish. So we contacted them and said, your bikes are rubbish. And uh, we got a bit of luck, you know, on the day that, that we told them we thought their bikes were rubbish. They had 400 bikes delivered that had a fault. And we went there and redeveloped and redesigned all the bikes and you know, created. They had a lot of bikes stolen. So we, we clear coat lacquered them and had Centre Park stickers underneath. And and so, uh, you know, became the official bike supplier to Centre Parks was, was pretty good. Sold them thousands of bikes, millions of pounds worth of stuff. And, you know, anyone who's been to Centre Parks on holiday, uh, uh, actually not that the business I, I have left recently is the official bike supplier of Centre Parks at the moment, but it has been over the years of, you know, 10 or 15 years and the bikes got radically better. So it's more fun riding around the park. So, you know, we did that. We supplied Halfords, we, uh, you know, which is a, you know, a major, but we also work with independent bike dealers. So so selling the selling the business was a necessity because there were three partners, my dad, my brother and me, and we all had different life goals. And so it wasn't a huge achievement. It was it was just, it was like the right thing to do at the right time. Because my dad was, uh, you know, 77, I think, when we sold. And my brother had sort of had enough and wanted to go and do other things. And uh, so all three of us needed to go in different directions. So it was the right thing to do. And it was an incredibly volatile world. And uh, currency being one of them at the time. And so, um, so no, uh, I don't, I can't really... Uh, I think we did loads of cool stuff. You know, we we created the bike brand, we made products, we sold stuff internationally, we had international distributors for component brands. We've done quite a lot of cool stuff and had, you know, in, in the bike industry, it's, it's a fun industry. You know, you've actually got to ride the product so you can talk the talk. And, you know, so I've ridden mountain bikes in Utah and, you know, done all sorts of, all sorts of adventures and things on bikes and stuff like that, which are, which are pretty fun. I don't think it's been one stellar achievement. I, I think this new business which at the moment is tiny you know it has i think it's got enormous potential and i think it could be great fun and so uh so as i said it's all been an apprenticeship so the best is yet to come i think so what does success mean to you i think when you're younger you may you may be just sort of driven to make loads of money and you know have flashy cars and all that sort of thing not everyone is but i think i might have seen success as that when i was younger and I've got kids. And so I think success sort of morphs into providing the best you can for your kids. I think that starts with stability. And then it sort of goes into, well, I could give them some more. I could give them some more maybe without giving them too much. Otherwise, you obviously then destroy their work ethic and they just think everything comes too easily. And so that's a balancing act when you can afford to give a bit, but also you shouldn't give too much. So I think it, it goes, I think with me as a young person, it sort of went from uh, wanting to make lots of money to wanting to, to provide stability and sort of give the best you could. And then my kids are 21 and 24 now and have their own uh, careers, which is another reason why I can do this sort of control or delete and, and try something completely different, which is, you know, financially currently unsuccessful. And, um, you know, because it's, it's still small, my kids are in inverted comm commas off my hands. So this new phase, I think... You know, I, I definitely think that you need to set out with a goal to make money and be commercially successful. But I think in my particular time at my age with my foundations, I think I can I can certainly look to enjoy uh, this new business because this is going to be – so it's a coffee brand. Breakfield is a coffee brand, but uh, it is going to be an adventure sports brand. So it is 
it is going to be a, it's going to be a lifestyle brand it is a you know it's a fledgling lifestyle brand that will support athletes kite surfers mountain bikers motorcyclists you know BMXs snowboarders all that kind of stuff and it will support those people to do cool stuff um that creates a lifestyle brand that is caffeine based well, so one of the things that, you know, you have to do is you have to, you know, it's it's nice to know your ambassadors and athletes. It's nice to go to the European championships of some sport like kite surfing or, you know, go to a snowboarding hill and see how you're, uh, you know, we're not really there yet in terms of having, you know, big name winning competitive athletes and all that sort of stuff because this thing's too, too small. But I did work with the, um, with the Speedworks, Speedworks Toyota team last year and, uh, and we, we sort of sponsored the uh, Toyota Supra GT4 race car. So I went to Brands Hatch and, you know, there was, there was all the social distancing regulations and the, and the crowds weren't there and all that stuff. But, but we did uh, actually crowds were there because it wasn't an elite sport. That's why we, we went there, but you know, it was good to go and see the car and, you know, there's a car driving around Silverstone and Brands Hatch and all those other tracks with Brakeford written all over it. And then you feel part of the team and, and, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting to see the lap times and tire choices and all that stuff. So I think, I think success will be growth, but I think, I think it could be quite a lot of fun because I like all those action sports and I've spent a lifetime in action sports industries and, uh, I have a bit of a feel for them and I, you know, generally have a bit of an idea of what's cool. And so I think, I think it will be, it will be running a business that has a cool brand and is enjoyable to be involved in. What what drives you? Because it, the thing that strikes me is that there are various points where some, uh, and everybody's different, but some might have stepped off, you know, had gotten a degree of success that for them meant that they could afford to perhaps take the foot off the gas, go off and, you know, go fishing around the world, fishing or whatever it might have, whatever the choice might have been, it could have mm. stepped backwards, but you, you keep going and you, you made the point, you know, you're launching a new brand. Brake fluid sounds really exciting. You're clearly very passionate about it. You're off again. You're off and running. You know. Mm. And it, so, why? What drives you? I think just people. I like working with people. I think really. I can't. You couldn't. You can just lay on a beach all the time, or uh, you know, just like you can't watch the telly because the the news always annoys me. So so I can't. You know, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. And and the people I work with. So you know, I work with a marketing agency, and there's. And there's, uh, you know, young people in the office and they're talented and they're graphic designers and, and, and they, uh, you know, they create a new image or video or they, you know, they go out and shoot video of a, of a kite surfer or something like that. And, you know, then they're working on their Macs and building it. And at the end of it, they say, what do you think of that? And I go, wow, that's cool. You know? And so, and so we get to, uh, you just get to work with people, I think. And I do think, you know, success or you know what in whatever its measure is i mean i think that's a motivator i think it's nice to be successful and and and, and you know is that recognition or whatever i potentially i think so so um i just you just need something to do and i enjoy working for myself and i like brands and i like all these sports which i'm hopeful that the brand can uh you know make sure it's it's in and uh and so and so it's 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 working with young people and having comradeship and laughs and then Hopefully, making I'm a, I'm having to learn something completely new. Like, like product development in the bicycle industry is engineering and drawings and technology, and then and then spending time in an Asian factory, you know, in Taiwan, and looking at a tube bender and and like working out how many degrees of angle you want to put on a handlebar to make sure your wrists feel comfortable when you're riding, and and it's metal and and it's so it's basically it's it's cardboard, plastic, aluminium, carbon fiber, and steel. You know, that's that's bicycles. Mm-hmm. 
And now I'm uh, sort of standing in a laboratory with a chemist and talking about you know, beverages and, and talking about reverse osmosis and cleaning water to 0.45 microns and learning about you know how to make water clean and pure so that you can put things in a can and so that it will last as long as possible without preservatives. And then, of course, we're talking about trying not to use single-use plastic because Brake Fluid has a premium coffee line that's sold online. And uh, then it has a range of bean-to-cut machines, which we're hoping to launch into bike shops and motorcycle shops and and you know all those kinds of related kind of industries, car dealerships and, and things like that. And then we will have ready-to-drink product too. So ready-to-drink product, you know, there's a lot of energy drinks out there already. There's a lot of cold brew coffees from Starbucks or Costa and all that stuff. But, you know, there are new things that can be done. This is this is uh, the coronavirus period. And, you know, we think that people will be wanting to, to buy drinks afterwards that will that will perhaps uh, be health beneficial. And you know, there's there's more of that coming. We're not unique in that. But but, you know, that's the stuff we're working on. We're working on um, drinks that will be so coffee based drinks that will be, have caffeine in them, obviously, because that will give you a bit of a stimulant. But if we can also give you something that's health giving. So we can make you have a bit of buzz. So you want to go and do crazy stuff and then we can make you a bit stronger so that you recover from it when you fall, then that would be good. So product development is interesting. And like I said, I, I've spent a lifetime in one industry really. So so it's quite interesting to work out whether I'm a one trick pony. Do do standard business principles, uh, you know, and sort of behaviors and, and the way you interact with people. Was that just like in the bike industry or does it also work in the beverage industry? And so that's pretty interesting to work out whether I actually have any clue what I'm doing. Or and and one of the things I found so far is is the best thing to do is to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I you have to help me here. I I think I understand the basic principles of running a company, but I'm having to learn about the beverage industry. This is you know like like how does this work? And so everyone I I do ask, could you help me? I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Everyone then you know, is tremendous in giving me all their help and knowledge. So, you know, like, you know, being shown around a a factory with where they make beverages and reverse osmosis and cleaning drinks to 0.45 or 0.2 microns and the benefit of that. And, and then, you know, we're looking to do, um, you know, what are we going to put these ready to drink products in? We're going to put them in cans, not plastic, you know, aluminium. I think it's 96% of the world's aluminium has already been used. And so, so aluminium is the most recycled metal in the world. I think, you know, I'm just a bike guy or a coffee guy. So, so maybe these maybe these statistics, you know, need to be verified. But, you know, we're going to put it in in aluminium. So when you've got an aluminium can, you know, like a, a, a 250 milliliter can, like a sort of Red Bull shaped can, as opposed to a Coke can that's 330 milliliters. But, you know, the, is there another can that we could use? In fact, you know, is there cans with screw tops? Because when you buy your can drink, one of the problems with having it in your car is you can't reseal it and spill it all over your car. But a single-use plastic bottle, obviously, you can put the lid back on. But who wants single-use plastic now? So you know, there's a lot of there's a lot to learn. Like it's a it's a whole new game. I've you know, it goes from standing in a Taiwanese bike factory and you know feeling how handlebars felt with an eight degree bend to standing in a in a in a food and beverage manufacturing facility learning about reverse osmosis is is um, is interesting. So I can't you know think of anything else that would be sort of better to do that would stimulate the mind and interact with people and and all that stuff a lot of um intellectual energy is taken up not only the physical energy with what you're describing and the work career that you've enjoyed what do you do to unwind and relax i have a really cool dog i have a really nice dog uh he's a fox red labrador 
I don't think he's a real Fox Red Labrador. I think he's a bit of a con. He's got a bit of Rhodesian Ridgeback bred in, even though he had a pedigree. He had a pedigree, but he ate it. Um, so I walk the dog a lot. Uh, I ride motorcycles when I was a kid. I used to race motocross before taking up BMX and all that stuff. I didn't have motorcycles uh, all the way growing up, uh, all the time my kids grew up, because I would I could then say to them, no, you can't have a motorbike because they're really dangerous. But um, but once I got divorced and the and the um, and the kids were growing up, I then uh, passed my motorcycle test, and so I have a I have a motorcycle. I I did a really nice holiday. I I landed at uh, Los Angeles and rode from Los Angeles to San Francisco with a mate of mine. We we tried. We had a rule that we would do no chain hotels, no freeways, and no chain restaurants. And so that was like our guiding principle. We failed on all three, but at least we set out with it. And we tried not to do sat nav. We sort of tried to just follow our nose. So we failed on all of them, but we did. It was nice to have a sort of a theme to the trip. And so we sort of went up through the woods and we went to that um, walk of a hundred giants and you know, looked at the redwood trees and all that stuff. And like doing that on a motorcycle is really cool because it's all pine forests and you get to smell it all as well as see it all. So that was good. And then we rode back down Pacific Coast Highway. Um, I've done a similar thing in in the south coast of France too. Uh, flew to Nice, rented a... So I did that one on a Harley because I was in America, so you ought to do it on a Harley. It was a bit of a bag of bones, if I'm honest, and wasn't very comfortable. So the next time I did one, I did it. Um, uh, I flew to Nice and rode around Saint-Tropez and Monaco and, and the Gorge de Verdun and all those sorts of places on a BMW, which which had, you know, decent indicators and mirrors and panniers. And it was like, it was a lot better. So yeah, I've ridden, I've ridden motorcycles. I quite, I quite fancy doing quite a lot more of that, but obviously we've got travel travel problems at the moment, but I wouldn't mind doing those sort of trips across Vietnam or something like that. And I'd also like to do more of California with, um, I'd like to go to Frank Sinatra's house in, uh, oh, I forget the town he's in now, but I'd like to go to Sinatra's house. I'd like to go to, I'd like to go to Yellowstone and Yosemite and all that stuff on a motorcycle. So, um, so I do that and, then, and I, you know, I've got kids, so I do as much as I can with my kids, although they are uh, grown up. Uh, I used to watch my son play football almost every Sunday. He was good. He's played an adult team until coronavirus. And so my poor son has to tolerate the fact that his dad stands on the time. He's 24 and he has, you know, like I'm the only dad there pretty much. But um, so I'll still, I, if you gave me the choice of watching my son play a, you know, a, a match in on a local field in February in the wet, or going to the FA Cup final, I, I know I take watching my son. And so uh, I spend as much time as I can with my kids, uh, but they're both busy. And uh, so that's it, really. Yeah, motorcycles, kids, dog, you know, it's all pretty normal stuff, really. So what advice would you give 21-year-old Russell Mary? I think, I mean, most of my stuff that's turned out okay has been, you know, follow your gut, really. Uh, and so I think following your gut is is, is a lot. I mean, there's a few principles. Someone told me once, um, and, and like you pick up stories of other people's success or, or mistakes and you think, well, better learn from that. You know, someone told me that sales is uh, is listening, you know, and talking in proportion. So, you know, two ears, one mouth. So listen twice as much as you talk. Obviously, that's not quite the theory of this conversation. But uh, so I tried to do that. And, and I've also, I have found, and like even like, most recently with this whole new industry thing, like the more you say to people, could you help me? I, you know, I don't, rather than pretending you know what you're talking about, 
I mean, when I went and worked in America, one of the things they had was a ton of three-letter acronyms. Like, they love three-letter acronyms. And I, I just used to stop and say, what does that mean? Like, what do those three letters mean? And it turns out there were some basic accounting words in, in America, but there were different words for those things in, in the UK, or we just don't use as many corporate three-letter acronym behaviors. So I always used to just stop and say to people, could you explain that? Tell me what it is. And... Um, and then it's, it seems to me the, the more you ask people and just admit that you don't know what you're doing, uh, the more they're willing to tell you and help you and then probably tell you like everything. So I think listening, asking and being sort of honest and then going with your gut really. So what does the future look like for brake fluid? It's really, uh, it is really early days. Like I bought a, a business that, have, that had, I bought a brand, I bought a brand name, that, you know, effectively had almost no turnover at all. It, it is, you know, if you go on Instagram or you, even the website or whatever, it, it looks like a proper business, but but it is really really small. And um, and it, and it, I bought this brand name, and it and it had almost nothing. Now, what I honestly think it can be, I I genuinely think it can be a global beverage brand, like, and I genuinely think it can be enormous, and I think it can be uttered in the same breath as as Pepsi, Coke, Starbucks, and Costa. You know, I I genuinely think that because because no one else seems to be doing what we're doing. You know, there is. There is Red Bull and there is, uh, you know, Monster and there's all those energy drink brands. And then there's Starbucks and Costa. And, you know, it seems to me uh, that, you know, coffee is uh, has caffeine in it. And that is a natural product that grows on trees. And, and you know, it's it's sort of nicer than some of the chemicals that are in some of the energy drinks. And you seem to have, and yet there's this huge groundswell of interest in coffee from all demographics and ages. So what we're going to do really is is, you know, sort of, blend coffee with with excitement and energy and uh, create a modern day adventure sports brand uh, which has coffee it may well do other beverages in the future and there's, there's lots of people who make great coffee like you know I do buy coffee from other coffee shops and, and I don't have coffee shops but I you know I, I'm not we make really nice coffee it's great coffee it's you know, it's, it's ethically sourced it's actually ecologically roasted by a patented system by our roastery and it's and it's really really nice coffee but there's lots of nice coffee and then there's, there's people who are great at making coffee and they they be successful and happy in their in their business and everything else. And then there's there's people in in sort of business. I think this apprenticeship I've had that has been the combination of the family business with the global business. I have quite a decent sort of global mindset outreach. I think I understand how to structure a business. So you know what we're doing is going to going to have multiple sort of revenue streams: a premium coffee that's sold online, bean to cup machines that we hope to have machines placed in um, you know in commercial premises. Uh, you know I think. Retail is going to change, right? Retail is going to change post-coronavirus. And one of the ways retail is going to change is because people are much more comfortable shopping online. I mean, it's going that way anyway. These are accelerated trends. But I actually really like the high street. I like independence. I like I like the high street. I, I quite like shopping. Even my kids are actually beginning to quite like trying clothes on. That's pretty radical because a lot of things turn up and they're the wrong size. So, um, But I think the way to encourage people to go back to the high street is to create experience. High street retail will need experience. You know, like if you're going to buy a, a television, you know, you could you could look at it online and you could see that they've got an enormous range of 43-inch televisions and they've got customer reviews and you could choose the lowest price with the best customer review and you can get it delivered to your office. Fantastic. That's one way of shopping. Another way of shopping would be to go to your local electrical store that might be one of a chain of three and owned by the owner who happens to have his kids working in the business who like, and even if it, you know, the, all the extended staff, they probably all go to the same Christmas do at a restaurant locally somewhere. And so they have a, and so they give you 
you know, a completely opposite kind of kind of service. They give you, you know, owner invested service. And so they'll give you different, you know, hopefully better advice and, and knowledge and they'll, they'll be well-trained. And so I think there's two types of retail that are going to survive. And that's one that can create that sort of independent and personal experience and one that can, and one that is just convenience and delivered online. You know, I think the middle ground's probably going to going to suffer, which is which is those out of town shopping centres with you know with not the choice and range of the internet, but not the personal service of the high street. One of the ways I think the high street can create you know customer experience and shopping experience, for example, in some of the industries that I've spent my time in, the bike industry, the motorcycle industry, the car industry, is making sure people can have a coffee and and um, and so we'll have been to cut machines in in those kind of places to make it simple for people to be able to create an experience. And and if you're sitting there and talking about buying a £5,000 e-bike or a, you know, £20,000 car or whatever, then, then, you know, in the middle of the transaction, if you're going to have a nice cup of coffee and, and, you know, that's, that's a positive thing. So, so Breakthrough will sell premium coffee, bean to cup coffee, ready to drink product. That ready to drink product should, should hopefully catch the trends that, that will be this sort of fortification of drinks with, um, you know, with health benefit additives. So, uh, so that's that. I own the brand name in the UK. We'll prove concept. I own it in many countries. We'll hopefully prove concept in the UK, and then we could internationalize it and do the same thing in other countries. It's an acorn at the moment. Would I like it to be an oak tree? Absolutely. Would I like it to be a global beverage brand? Absolutely. The ambition is limitless. Fantastic. Sounds really exciting. Where can people find you? So, breakfluid.com is is the website. You know, we have installed one coffee machine so far. I think by the end of April, we'll probably have done 50. Uh, in the UK, I think Costa has 3,000. So, you know, that's the scale. We're one stroke 50, they're 3,000. So, so breakflow.com is the best place to find us right now. Soon you should be able to find us in, you know, in the coming years, you should be able to find us in in all those kind of environments. You know, maybe that's skateboard shops or, or ice rinks or go-kart centers or, you know, anything that where you can get a coffee and sort of something's done. More and more retail environments, certainly. And then as we develop, and you know, I'm like I say, I've been I've been learning about how to develop and produce and distribute. I think we have a distributor for the business of the ready to drink can products. So eventually I hope you'll go into uh, you know, a convenience store or supermarket and buy and buy can product. There's other things that we're working on there. Far too secret. If I told you I'd have to kill you, that that, you know, are more products that are that are part of what will become the brand that is brake fluid. I mean it sort of sounds crazy to talk about a business that is you know, of that potential scale where I know that it's still, you know, pretty small. But, you know, the company that we've uh, signed the agreement with for the bean to cup coffee machines, a proper company, you know, with, with 22 salespeople, 43 engineers, you know, we can we can service coffee machines across the UK. And that's brand new. That's sort of started now. So so it's still uh, embryonic, but the ambition is limitless. Fantastic. Russell Mary, it's been, it's a fascinating story that I'm really looking forward to watching you continue to succeed, continue to thrive. I appreciate an awful lot of blood, sweat and tears goes into making these happen and uh, there'll be more to come. But uh, Break Fluid, I think, sounds like a fantastic proposition and uh, I wish you every success. Really appreciate your time this morning. It's been great to speak with you and find out a bit more about your story. Uh, and I wish you all the very best for the future. Thank you. I guess, I guess, um, I guess I don't know if it's a fascinating story. Uh, it, I'm just sort of an ordinary bloke who mokes it up as he goes along, but this does seem like it's going to be fun. So um, fascinating or not, I don't know. But thanks anyway. I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been good. Fantastic. Look forward to watching you succeed. All the best. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Russell.
Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.